And uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us for today's reading in the New Writers series. What a treat. Um, it's, it's really nice for me. I'm normally in a bit of a mix of cultural studies and Chinese literature, and I'm kind of moonlight in the writing section by way of translation. So some of you know that I um, sometimes teach classes in translation. Myself, I translate from Chinese to English, um, but uh, the classes that I work that I teach usually involve any target, any source language uh, with English as the target. Um, and this quarter we're dealing with questions of uh, the impossibility of translation, things that come to you that are not necessarily related to the exact word. Too often with the idea of translation we think of something as uh, kind of futilely literal. Uh, if you can't translate podium into some other language, then the translation is not accurate. Uh, but as most of us know, in literature and arts, that's usually not an equation that yields a more emotional food. So today I'm pretty psyched because our visitor is uh, Jamie proctor Sheep, and she's, uh, she and I actually know each other from way back, back in grad school, and have managed to follow each other's um, changing career trajectories. Uh, but Jamie's always been a poet and has, uh, over the years, uh, found her way into some of the key poetry circles in China, uh, where she operates to uh, not only to organize events in China, in Chengdu and Beijing and elsewhere, uh, but also to participate actively in them and to publish in <coughs> Chinese uh, and in English, um, and to really have a, a perspective on the, the interrelationship of those two languages that I think very few people have, that genuine uh, bilingual nature, that genuine ownership, active ownership of language production that can change your relationship to a word. So for example, it's one thing to sort of passively um, take on a word, um, you read it and you understand it in your heart. It's another thing to produce it actively uh, as your word uh, and to be able to do that in multiple languages and to understand the relationships among those expressions is a pretty unique uh, thing. So I'm, I feel pretty lucky that we get to have Jamie uh, read for us today. Uh, I'll just recite, kind of reiterate some of the items on her uh, from the poster, uh, just so that just refresh your memory about her. But I also wanted to uh, add something special um, about uh, Jamie's upcoming itinerary. And she's uh, we're extra lucky to have her because she's basically like, you know, all over the place. Sometimes in in. Um, in Arizona, sometimes in Chengdu, sometimes in Northern California. We got this beautiful, perfect window in San Diego until tomorrow morning at 6. Um, and when her flight leaves, ungodly hour. Um, and so one of the really, really interesting things is that just even geography doesn't stop this person um, from doing the work of sharing poetry because on, um, is it May 20th at the, the Sujo Biennale uh, will actually have an exhibit involving Jamie's poetry in which a video of her, she will basically, is it Skype? Will we be Skyping in? Yeah, for the opening of the exhibit. Yeah, <laughs> or, like live. Live Skyping, <laughs> like live video participation in an in a, uh, uh, installation in the Sujo Biennale in just a few days. So that's pretty cool. And um, I wish I could be there to see it. So uh, Jamie Proctor, she, uh, Xu Zhemi is a poet, essayist, translator, and a mother who writes in English and Chinese. Her chapbook of Chinese poems, Shimmers, uh, which is available over there. Uh, is that, that's the one of those. Oh, no, oh, no, no sorry. Sorry, sorry that was a Chinese chapbook that Shimmers was. We've got um, two chapbooks over here in case you're, in case you're interested. In, uh, Jamie and I was just chatting, and she's like, well, this is students. You know, I'm not going to charge people lots of money. How about like $8? And frankly, that's the biggest bargain you'll ever get. So in case you want a really interesting um, present to give someone, or if you'd like a copy of your own, please uh, let us know. Um, but her book in Chinese, Shimmers, was published in 2013 as part of the EMS Dushi Poetry Series. And her full-length Chinese collection, Suddenly Starting to Dance, Turan Chiwu, which is, that is over yeah. there, um, is forthcoming, is now out from ePress and and her chapbook of English poems, Hummingbird Ignites a Star, also available, was <coughs> published in 2014. So uh, let's just welcome <coughs> Jamie Proctor Shu to do our reading today.
coming today and thank Ari for inviting me and thank Taylor and Gina, Gina for um, setting up today. Thank you so much. And um, so usually when I read, I read in English and Chinese and then also I read, I translate a lot of um, contemporary Chinese poets work. And so I usually like to read some of their work in English as well. Um, so I'll be doing that. Um, uh, yeah, as I go along. Um, so um, Ari had mentioned that uh, he's uh, teaching about translation, and some of you here have been talking about it. And actually, translation is central <laughs> to my writing process, partly just because I've uh, been living between two languages uh, since I started learning Chinese when I was 18 or 19. And, um, and then I was uh, living in China in 2008. I was in Beijing, and I started um, publishing poems there. And um, I just write however the poems come. So sometimes they come in Chinese, sometimes in English. And sometimes I actually write like back and forth between languages. Um, so uh, I, have, I went through a phase um, in Beijing where I was writing a lot of bilingual poems just because that was the context in which I was living, um, because I'm asked to interpret at a lot of events too, so when I'm there as a poet. So um, I was going to start with a bilingual poem that I wrote, which I wrote actually um, using a line by the Tang poet Du Fu, and the line is Liang Ge Huang Li Ming Cui Liu, which means two orioles call from the green willow. And um, maybe this was the first time I had really done a fully bilingual poem. Um, so the poem has some lines that are translations of Du Fu's poem, some that are loose translations, and then my own lines are in there too. So I'll start with that one. Willow, Liu. Two orioles call from the green willow. Two boys cross a river. Returning home. A boy slips. Yellow feather waves beat against weeping branches. Beneath a flurry of orioles, one boy reaches the other shore. Liu. Willow. Liu. One boy reaches the other shore. Liang ge huang li ming cui liu. Liu, and that's flow. A line of egrets ascends the blue sky. A line of words enters the river's flow. In green waters, a friend searches for a friend. From his mother's window, the snow of a thousand autumns accumulates on the west peak. Why this need for a body to burn? To bury, to burn, liu, flow, liu, liang ge huang li, ming cui liu. A line splits in seven directions. A letter, a character, collide against the stone's gray surface. All he finds is his friend's face. He carries it in his hands. All he has to hand to a mother. The snow of a thousand autumns on the west peak. Anchored in the doorway, a boat from 3,000 miles east. Liu, to remain, to retain, to stay. Liu, to keep. Two orioles call from the green willow. Um, next, I'll read another poem that also, um, this one incorporates a line, um, or lines by Li Bai, who's also another Tang poet that maybe some of you are familiar with. And some English speakers think his name is Li Po or Li Bo, um, so in Mandarin it's Li Bai. Um, so this is also, and then there's one Chinese line in it that's mine, that's Lan Lu Guo Lai, which is, um, means She's calling to blue deer, so. But the other lines are Levi's in Chinese. Feel the 10,000 flowers. Red petal girl walks her blue deer through the night sky. Above cold mountain, 
She sees Levi reach out to pluck a star flower. When he turns his hand over, characters fall from his palms, blossoming pictographs into a field of stars. She is walking through fallen words, each glowing with its own light. Petals shed as she walks, red petals fall from her hair. The blue deer follow behind her, eating petals. Each night it is so. The man who forms rain clouds and words walks in front of her. He has memorized maps of stars. He breathes a benevolent blue wind. For nights, she silently follows his footsteps, only sometimes speaking to call to her dear. Lalu, Guolai, she calls. Softly, so as not to startle the immortals in the sky. Each night it is so. So why is she afraid, silent, afraid the petals will run out, the blue deer will go hungry? Is she tired? Will her thoughts not form into words? Is she afraid death comes too close, is she afraid the word stealer who raped her has broken the roots beneath her stems? What if the petals no longer fall? For months, she walks with this question caught in her throat. For months, it stays there until the blue wind carries a star into her throat that knocks the words loose. She whispers then, behind the man who forms rain clouds and words, I'm afraid. What if the flowers don't bloom anymore and no petals fall? What of the deer then? Don't worry, he says. I know the way to the field of 10,000 flowers. We can go there together, but you need to be sure to keep feeling your own footsteps. You need to remember the way back to language without me. Only then will I hear your voice clearly. Don't be afraid. I felt your presence behind me even before you arrived. From the mountain temple, the poets watched them set out for the field of 10,000 flowers, contemplating still how many petals are yet to fall. Oh, actually, for the Suzhou exhibit, um, they had also asked me to film some poems, um, like me out in different places reading poems, and they're going to project them on the wall. And I was reading this yesterday and having my son reluctantly being my film guy. And um, I was in Walnut Creek in a trail reading this, or about, we were walking along and all of a sudden this herd of cows came. And so the video is like sort of amazing because I'm reading about walking with these deer, but like they're, I'm walking with all these cows and then I had no idea we would reach this place where there's a hill with about like 25 cows. <laughs> So anyway, I was just thinking of that as I was reading this right now. Um, I'll read a poem now in English and then uh, read the Chinese of it. Refuge, another horizon, cicada wings, cornflower blue evening. This horizon, magpie wings, baby blue morning, we tread words, convergence in words, thunder-skinned, fire-inspired, colors replenish humbled worlds, I, we, mystical light, song light, buzzing, clacking, black, two skies, blue. <clears throat> Binansua 
Oh, um, for those of you who might be native Chinese speakers, my tones are a little crazy right now because I travel a lot and I pick up accents wherever I go. So I last trip to China, like within the span of three weeks, I was like hearing Mandarin and then hearing a Jiangsu dialect that sounds nothing like Mandarin and then hearing Cantonese and then hearing the Chengdu dialect. So sometimes when that happens, my tones might get a little crazy. So. Um, so I had like a time in Beijing where I was um, doing yoga in the Temple of the Sun, which is where um, the emperors used to go and do um, rituals for the sun. And I don't know if any of you have been to Beijing, but there's like a Temple of Heaven, Temple of the Sun, Temple of the Moon, and then the Temple of the Earth. And it was kind of random for a few years. Um, there was this yoga company, Yogi Yoga, that got permission to hold yoga classes in the bell tower um, at Rutan, and when I was, or the Temple of the Sun, and when I started doing yoga there, I kept getting flash like flashes of fire, these intense flashes, and then I found out later, like I was outside one day, and I noticed there's a, a information thing, and it said that actually the bell tower had burned um, at one point, so um, uh, I wrote a poem like that sort of came out of that space and that experience. I'll read two yoga poems um, that were both from that time period. So, May, Temple of the Sun. The bell tower burned, making space for the six-paneled skylight. Poplar branches with new leaves shed spring snow. Seeds fly past a black crane kite. A woman lies on her back, palms open, upward. The bell tower burned off the second story. Poplar leaves, spring snow seeds past a woman. On her back, a black crane. The third eye separates. A woman burned, a bell tower branches the second story, a black crane on a woman's back, making space for six-paneled light. Sky seeds, blue. The stone staircase curves left in the archway. She climbs burned leaves. The stone steps in at the skylight. Thick accumulations emanate lightly. Grief's orgasm trembles her. In the sea of concrete, raised rocks enter the balls of her feet. A magpie flies so close, his wings enter the tremble. They are colored in rings, she thinks. She knows the name of this blue, though it refuses her memory, wanting instead to reside in her lower temples. She walks closer to his alighted blue. He lets her. The man with gold stars in his ears chants, the guru is the creator, the guru is the protector, the guru is the destroyer. There is no bell in the tower that burned. So I'm guessing some of you probably do yoga, and maybe not, but the, this, I wrote a poem that came from the, the warrior pose. Um, I forget which one that is. Anyway, but there are two warrior, or a few. But anyway, yeah, so this is um, uh, just came from an experience I had at the, the same thing in Beijing at the, the bell tower. Warrior pose. Arms stretched outward, left knee bent, right leg extended, 
foot turned in. She turns her head to focus on her left hand, stops. Before she gets there, on the pile of bricks in the corner, a dead cricket's body lies, shimmering in morning's fifth golden light. How long has he been there? Why hasn't anyone noticed? A note suspended sings down mulberry leaf veins, green-yellow passages from this peaking opera song she cannot name. A teacher's voice grows distant. She bends her knee deeper, focus, focus. But the cricket is still there, and what if someone picks up the brick and doesn't see him? In the third breath, she cannot stay. She walks to the corner, kneels beside bricks. A cricket's body disintegrates into steel gray, flakes of graphite fallen to form a pool beside the rest of the body, still there. How long has he been there? The old man still sings passages from a peaking opera in the shade of the wooden pavilion where animals once lay, sacrificed to gods. The well, now cemented over, supports the weight of the man's feet. A teacher counts backwards. Shijiu sunlight, qi, on roof tiles, liu makes the wu, pavilion, si, appear san, wet, er, yi. When she lifts the brick, the cricket's thin line legs catch the wind and begin to move. And for a moment, she thinks maybe he is still alive but injured. But the steel gray dust of the missing part of his body tells her no. She looks into the yellow-white sky, not knowing where to take him. All around her, students straighten their legs, inhale to prepare for the other side. Where do the dead go? Where do the dead go? Magpie and the mulberry, where do the dead go? So I think now I'll read um, a few um, poems by uh, my friend, um, the Chinese poet Jai Yongming, who's um, in China we all call her Shigun um, which means the goddess of poetry. And um, she's really like, um, she's part of the reason I became a publishing poet, actually, because um, when I met her, I went as a Berkeley grad student researching Chinese literature, and then she was like, you write poetry, why aren't you publishing? And I'm like, I don't know. And um, she and Zhou Zhan, who's another poet, and then a few people kept encouraging me. But she's actually somebody who's mentored a lot of young uh, poets, young artists, and inspired. Um, and she was, uh, in the 1980s, she published a long poem called Woman, and it influenced, like, even now, it's, like, influencing generations of Chinese poets. And um, she, the reason I love, one reason I love Chengdu so much is she owns a bar called White Nights, um, which is in Chengdu. And it's in this old, uh, like, these alleyways. And it's, like, a courtyard. But then inside the bar, um, they have a lot of art exhibits. And um, there are poetry readings. I just did an, a reading there last month with two American poets. And... It was like a translation exchange, and um, that bar is like this mix of like architects and artists and just students and everybody. So um, anyway, but I translated some of her shorter poems, and I'm getting ready to translate a long poem of hers. Um, so I'll read a few of her poems now. Chrysanthemum lanterns float by. Chrysanthemum lanterns float by, one by one, in the night, in the surrounding stillness, among layered voices of children on the riverbank. Chrysanthemums fade, fade into bird shadows. Children float by carrying lanterns in their soft chorus of song. There is no fear, no joy, 
no sorrow. There are only chrysanthemum lanterns, the paleness of chrysanthemums, the redness of lanterns. A young maiden also floats by carrying a lantern. A young maiden and her servant both have their hair twisted in buns. Their magnificent outfits are just silk, streamers, and clasps, are just pendants, earrings, and hairpins, clinking and clanking as they walk along. The young maiden and her nursemaid are both rich in experience. They're both leisurely seeking to face the moon at midnight. Maidens are gentle. Lanterns are gentle. They're floating, floating. They transform an ordinary evening into an extraordinary dream. Every night, chrysanthemum lanterns float by. A lantern bearer roams around the horizon. His syncopated footsteps make it hard to chase after him. Children grow up following him. This is a story of a lantern in the deep blue sea. If I sit on the floor, I will fear that strength. I will fear the shadows of chrysanthemums, light, people. I will make syncopated clink clink sounds in my room. If I sit on the sofa or the bed, I will enjoy myself. I will feel myself slowly become translucent, slowly change color. I will fill with smoke all night, then leave the ground rising. So she has a lot of poems that incorporate um, classical Chinese poetry and uh, philosophy and imagery. And, um, but she's also really interesting because she's somebody who writes a lot about like, contemporary art and uh, technology and uh, writes um, things like critiquing, like when they're, or not, not critiquing, but just like um, these poems that are rants too. Um, I don't have any of those, but she wrote one about um, the food scandals in China that were happening where the, the, the formula was tainted. And then she has another poem about this young girl who was raped several times. And um, so, uh, but I, yeah, so I have, a, uh, this one's a mix of the modern technology because she was writing letters um, or emails. So she was thinking about um, like classical, like love, but in the context of contemporary space. Oh, and in here it says the five-stroke method. That's one of the ways you can input Chinese into the computer. In antiquity, in antiquity, I could only write you letters like this, not knowing where we would meet again. Now I fill your inbox with star clusters, all in the five-stroke method. They all stand up and run for you. Where they're anchored in the sky, doesn't really concern me. In antiquity, emerald mountains persisted in existing. When green water fell drunk at their feet, we merely clasped our hands in a gesture of parting, knowing we'd meet again. Now you fly back and forth across the sky. Star clusters run over the whole sky, bumping into your sore spots. They're like countless patches covering a blue screen. They're not really hysterical. In antiquity, how many poems did people have to write to become Lao Mountain Taoist masters, breaking through walls, breaking through air, breaking through a cup of Julia Ching tea? Most often when they caught you, they would break open their heads and bleed, falling down, not getting up. Now you're dialing a cell number. It sends out thousands of scents. They enter into someone's bodily fragrance. When one part trembles, the whole world trembles. In antiquity, we weren't like this. We were just riding horses side by side for miles 
and miles. When my earrings jingled, you grinned slightly. In the moment we lowered our heads, we'd already ridden many more miles. And I'll read one more of hers. Reincarnating the child spirit for the me beyond the sky. Everyone has a reincarnated child spirit. Fall flowers emit decay. Willow catkins fill the sky. They're also in some space in this world, fluttering, awaiting opportunity. When my consideration sits still in my heart, your meditative mind moves as if in a moment an encounter beyond the sky years from now arrives under the eaves. I'm just using an abdomen of this world, walking from here toward the final exit. You turn to ice and melt into water somewhere else, and I too tremble in my dream, then sit up, hands to the forehead in prayer. So when I translate these poems, um, I really like to translate poets that are alive because I usually do a rough draft, and translation sort of like a meditative practice for me because I, I don't know why. It's like sitting and then the language is there and your mental space sort of like floats over it, I don't, at least for me. Um, uh, that's a really academic <laughs> description. <laughs> but, um, so... Uh, but I like for all these poems, like I'll do a rough draft and then I meet with the poet and I'll talk to them like what mental space or emotional space were you in when you wrote this? Um, what is there a story behind the poem? And for a poet like Jayoming, a lot of her poems have really fun, interesting, like wow, that you would never know if you read the poem. Um, and I told her like, oh, we should publish a book of these stories, but she likes to maintain the mystery in or like the distance between the story and the poem. Um, uh, right now I'm translating collections by two other Chinese poets. One of them is Song Lin, who's a poet from Fujian, um, who was really heavily influenced by Shanghai writers because he lived and taught in Shanghai for a long time. And he was, in, like, he was influenced by the ghost stories of the modern period. And then um, he's somebody, like, if you travel, like, we in China when you're traveling as a poet, you get sent all over and then like you'll arrive in Xinjiang and then for seven days they just take you all over um, and you visit historical sites or um, uh, like eat the local food and you talk to local poets and local people. And Songlin is one of my favorite people to be at events with because he's somebody like if he saw this music stand, he would be like, oh, this material reminds me of, and then something, a story from the Han dynasty of some person like casting metal. And like then, he'll, I don't know. So he's like a really interesting person to travel with and a challenging person to translate because of that. Um, so I'll read a poem of his about the West Lake in, um, in Hangzhou, which is like a lake that's steeped in poetic history. Um, and a lot of poets have written about the West Lake, and there's um, Bai Juyi is and uh, Sudongpo. Wait, yeah. So there are these places on the lake that are named after them. Um, so here's his West Lake journey poem. I'll read his instead of mine. I have one too. <laughs> West Lake night journey. Three sisters of Jiangnan, gems of Jim Hill. Hair thin as cicada wings partially conceals their lotus-covered arms. They use bells to guide me, and I evaporate into May. An anxious friend paces at the bottom of the hill, suffering from poetry acrophobia. The traveler asks, when will the moon rise? On the left shore, at the farthest point, Hangzhou's humming lights enter the gushing metal Tiantang River. Has my wandering soul returned? Water. Water sways the musk trees and combs the city gate's brows. 
From the by causeway to the Sioux causeway, the lake and the people play and frolic. In the opening and closing clamshells, swallows fly back and orioles fly forth. The path is empty. A cat is like Hugong's diligent disciple walking alone across Xiling. A Lake Tai stone gazes out at the lake's central pavilion, and fog secrets rise above the island. On the opposite shore, at the farthest point, a weather balloon hangs in the air. The three sisters come down from the hill. They walk on the water like cranes and wind. And the untraversable bridge asks me to stay. The traveler asks, are they masters of your memory? Night's magnetic waves shatter on dark oars, turning murky. The whiskers in an old man's smile look like snow. A lantern slips across the horizon, illuminating the shy new lotuses inside the rail. Pledging their eternal loyalty, these three riddle-loving sisters are like characters in a Yue opera who've just emerged from the Leifeng Pagoda, completely unaware of their past or future lives. On the right shore, at the farthest point, a small boat sits empty. An extraterrestrial fishes alone for moonlight. I'm tipsy. My arms clasp this wine jug, the West Lake. Um, so Songling has an interesting family history. Uh, he grew up in Fujian, which is uh, sort of near Taiwan. And um, his dad was fighting in the communist guerrilla troops at the time. But um, during the Cultural Revolution, it was, uh, he was mistakenly um, accused of having fought for the nationalists. And so he was imprisoned and then executed. And then later, uh, they said, oh, this was a mistake. Um, so he has a poem about his um, moving his father's um, grave, and he said that's actually a tradition, like in the part of Fujian where he's from, that you bury them and then later you move. Um, so uh, this is about, he wrote this poem on the, there's a grave sweeping festival in China, and he wrote this poem um, on that festival. My Father's Migration. They can't find you on a small hill where they buried you in haste that year. Wind has expanded the soul-trapping maze. That piece of the homeland is adrift. The overly lush ferns are like plants from a dream that drag along the afternoon's dark shadows. We walk slowly upward along the valley carrying the black map with erased markings, following closely behind the panting corpse collector. You lie beneath a cloak of corpulent leaves, hiding safely under death's protection. Answer me, Father. Come out. You no longer need to play hide-and-seek. Your buttons look like small Cretaceous period shells, the family's sacred objects have been placed carefully in the urn. Now we're forcing you to move again, to fly in a place the persecutors laugh can't reach. And he also has a poem about the Yuanmingyuan, which was the summer palace in Beijing that the French and the British burned down. It was this amazing, like, uh, complex that they were mostly wood buildings. And um, uh, during the colonial campaigns, they burned them down. And the irony of it was that the emperor had had this one section built to, like, sort of play European. So that's the part that was built in stone that survived. And all the wooden um, traditional Chinese palaces were burned down. So today, if you go to the Summer Palace in Beijing, it's just like, they say it's maybe like a fourth as big as the, the Yuanmingyuan was. You can visit the site of the Yuanmingyuan ruins, and it's actually 
an interesting space because in the 90s or was it late 80s a lot of artists went and poets and they they lived in that space because it ended up becoming like a farmland or um, and there was the whole group I have painter friends that hung out there and lived there like in the 90s Um, so this is a poem that Solnin wrote winter the lake has dried up but a sun still burns at the bottom of it. Ancient trees moan underground. Sparks burst forth from the cracks in frozen earth. Beneath construction worker shovels, the glaze on the empire's pottery shards is still green. Dead clams, too numerous to count, lie exposed like the shy ghosts of palace maids. And flocks of crows, serene as eunuchs, watch from the distance. You walk toward the heart of the lake. You're looking for a feudal cloth-embroidered shoe. How am I on time? Just, I want to know if I should keep reading the other translation. It's been about 35, 30, 35 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay, so I'll read... Um, at least one poem by Jidi um, Maja. Uh, he's vice, wait, like the second up in the Writers Association in China right now. And he's a really interesting uh, person. He uh, was known as a poet, but he later became a government official. And he's not Han Chinese. He's in Mandarin, we've um, called Yi, like the Yi people, but they're, in their language, it's Nosu. Um, so he's Nosu. And uh, He's really, uh, like, he calls me his Chinese cousin, so I'm his biao mei. <laughs> um, but he's, like, somebody, he, he put together the, inter, uh, the Qinghai International Poetry Festival, which brings, like, 250 poets from all over the world every other year. And he's uh, just, he also just had three poetry centers built in the mountains where he grew up, which are really, really remote. And since I'm was lucky enough that he asked me to translate a 250-page collection of his. And since the Nosu culture is so different from Han culture, he said, I want you to go and spend, he said a month, but I have a son, so I, like, I don't like to be away a full month. But I went for 16 days um, a couple of years ago, and his cousin took me. We were driving like four-wheel drive vehicles through rivers to get to these really remote villages. Um, so his work is, incorporates a lot of Nosu like cultural traditions and elements in it. Um, so I'll read uh, one or two short poems of his. Black River. I know funerals. I know ancient Nosu funerals on the great mountain. On a black river, human eyes twinkle golden light. I've seen a river of people quietly passing through the valley. I've seen a river of people overflowing with ripples of sorrow, passing heavily through this fluctuating world, passing heavily through this mystical world. I've seen a river of people converge into an ocean, clamor beside the dead, ancestors' totems being imagined in the sky. I've seen people in the burial procession being transformed as if in a dream into clothes of primitive beauty in the musket's beckoning. I've seen the dead serene as the great mountain under the caress of a thousand pairs of hands, listening to friendship sing grief. I understand funerals I understand ancient Nosu funerals on the Great Mountain. On the Black River, human eyes twinkle golden light. The Blue Sheep of Gulilada. Gazing out again over this magical realm, actually, everything is in the sky heading toward an enigmatic eternity, connected from here to boundless enormity. Emptiness and coldness are there, hoof echoes, 
fall silent. The curved horns of the males adorn far-traveling mist. Behind them is a black abyss. Its childlike eye floats in silent blue waves. In my dreams, I can't be without this star. In my soul, I can't be without this lightning. I fear if I lose them in the highest reaches of Daliang Mountain, my dreams will be transformed into nothingness. So I think um, I'll read um, some poems that don't have Chinese in them of mine that I grew up in Tucson in the desert and so I have like a still a very strong connection to the desert and um, actually one reason I love Maja's poems is because the mountains where he grew up have this vastness and um, there I don't know I feel a lot of like um, resonances with his work um, so I'll read a, a few desert poems that are actually part of, they can be considered one poem or three separate. The Boy in the Goat Cave. After he tells you the story, each dream you have begins with him in the goat cave. A boy of four in its darkness, run away from home. The scent of goats on dirt walls, a darkness stable enough not to cave in. A father's voice outside calls the boy back, gently, repeatedly. A father enters the darkness, his hand taking hold of the boy's hand. After he tells you the story, each dream you have begins with him in the goat cave. All night you're standing in the light, watching him in the darkness, listening for his father's voice. Each time his father leads him into the light, you inhale and become a woman inside your own body. Some days you're only its observer beside. Some days you dissolve into nothing but soundless words. A boy and his father walk into the light toward home, their light rolling you. White goats and sunlight White goats in sunlight, one, three, seven, then a whole field in motion, goats in all directions, goat hair against your calves, goat ribs bumping against your thighs, scent, dust, milk, wild grass, a mesa when you look out catching all pinks. Your work in this moment is to stand here, to memorize the sound of goats stepping on sand, to memorize this amber-tinged, honey-colored sunlight, to remember how this field of goats makes you smile until you start to laugh. Maybe, should I skip the last one and then we can read that one? Sure. Okay. Is that, because I, 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 for time? You're fine. Oh, should I read the last one? Yeah, read the last okay. one first. Okay. On the Mesa. The third time you awaken, face down, daylight, loose sand, touching forearms, touching shins, hip bones protruding into stone. A man memorizes the wind, exhales each gust along your spine. Desert summer arm across your breast. Wind chimes, wind chimes. We all fall down, face down. Daylight touching sand. The prayer is to kneel with the face in the sand. To use the palms to scoop sand. To splash the face with it. To rub the arms with it. Dry until your tears summon summer rain. Wet now, rub the earth on your cheeks again. Rub the earth on your arms again. 
As he breathes the wind across you, exhale all the mesa colors back into his skin. So for the last poem, I asked Ari to read it with me. It's one that I wrote um, also sort of as an experiment um, using lines of poets that I translated, like um, Jai Ming and um, Zhou Zan and I translated some of Brenda Hillman's poems into Chinese. So there's a Brenda line, Jai Ming, Shu Cai, and Li Li. Um, and the, it begins with, I have like nicknames in Chinese and real names, and so, yeah. Oh, and it also has lines of my own that are mixed in with these. Counterpoint. Amin. Jenmin. Jamie. Jamie. Jenmin. Amin. Xu. 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 Jenda. Yichia shi jenda. Bangkwa tiankong dadi fengyang za tsao. Yichia bangkwa ni wo ta ta ta. Really, everything is real, including the earth, the sky, the birds, grass, everything including you, me, he, she, it. Snow children's grass, the sound of the wind and the rain, tiny ant crawling across the white blanket. She said, every voice is needed. Every voice cries out in its own way. You taught me to listen to the cries. If it could, the moon would blow itself up spraying the flower bones of its whole body in every direction. The flower bones of every voice. Every voice cries out, every voice flowers in its own way. Thank you. Thanks Thank you so much. You've been like amazing. So thank you. itself seems to manifest itself as a kind of like echo of this sort of metaphysical meditation. And of course, poetry itself uses words to manifest this, but I'm, saying, I'm talking about something different. It's almost as if like the musician who's interpreting, composer, in which the melodic words Creates a, create a, creates a kind of harmonic resonance. And my question is whether you're consciously doing this, whether this is a, 
as a manifestation of you being an interpreter and translator, and therefore there's a language part that's wrapping around the expression itself. Could you comment on that? Because that to me, it seems to me, there's a degree of self-consciousness about it, and there's a, uh, another dimension that's wrapped around the poetry itself. Yeah, thank you so much for that comment. Um, actually, I do feel like it is both um, that I'm even like if I when I since I was little like I love the music of language, and I so when I write I read what I write aloud over and over as I'm writing it because I want like I the music has meaning to me, and um, I think like. But also, being an interpreter and translator, but also living, I've lived between um, two cultural and linguistic contexts since I was 17. I, I started working in a Chinese restaurant in Tucson, and the family spoke Cantonese. So, and I worked, they sort of took me in as family. So I heard Cantonese every day, even before I learned Mandarin. And I think that um, now, like my the way I think and process things um, is sort of within both contexts, and sometimes they become one, and then sometimes uh, they're separate, and the separateness is vivid to me, and I want to highlight that in a poem. And then sometimes, like with the willow, I wanted. I don't, it, sometimes it just happens by accident. Because I write like from really uh, like intense emotional spaces a lot of times, and then the words will just come. And I don't know if that answered your question. In part, uh -huh. I, I was particularly touched by the po poem you translated for me by uh -huh. because there was there seems to be a sense in which language itself is manifesting the world and is being part of. So that there is the world itself, but there is also another world in which it manifests itself, and through the language itself. So that, that to me seems to be commenting not only about the metaphysical existence, but about poetry itself, yeah. that being part of the cycle of understanding the world. Yeah, and I think it's the way that like poetry keeps remaking us, and we remake the world through poetry, because it was I was thinking through like some intense emotional spaces there and also some dreams I kept having about these blue deer but then Levi just appeared as I was sitting with those emotional spaces and those lines from his poem came to me so then I worked them in so yeah I feel like like you're when I like we're made by poetry and language makes us and then we make it and that's um yeah uh -huh. Thank you. Um, when you were like uh, presenting your poems, it seemed like there was like a specific like pitch, and it was constant throughout, which was different than like normal speech patterns. I was wondering if that was conscious decision, and like how did you decide what to use? Because it had like a like an ominous, like enigmatic, like sort of uh, tone to it. I don't know. I didn't like. I haven't done that on purpose, but it just sort of happened as I've read a lot, and it's, it's weird. Like, I'm back and forth between linguistic contexts, and sometimes my voice changes, like even in English, sometimes it's higher and sometimes it's lower. And then sometimes I'll read and they're all like that, and then sometimes they come out other ways. So I don't, it's not conscious really, it's just some space. But I mean, it's not not conscious in that when I'm engaged with the words, that seems to be the voice that comes, but it's shifts too, so I don't know. But today I noticed it too as I was reading. I was like, that it was like pretty consistently in that. Um, I don't know, I, when I was reading last year in Qinghai, this French poet told me that I sounded like a shamanist to him, that like summoning these worlds, but I don't know. Yeah? How do you keep the, um, the subtle nuances of each dialect, um, how do you organize them in your own, in your own brain? Because it seems like each each individual uh, linguistic you know, style has its own nuance and has its own like life. How do you how do you keep how do you keep yourself sane thinking about all of them? Um, probably by not overthinking. Like I I'm more like a the way I learn language is more like feeling. Like I don't know why, but like 
Um, and I think when I'm sitting with language, it's from that space too, but I do come out of it and think. But I think if you overthink it, like to me, that gives me a headache. But it, like I really appreciate linguists and that kind of mental space and ability to do that. But I'm more like where I'll just suddenly like know a dialect or like it'll be there and then, but I do like thinking I don't, I don't really know how to answer that except that I maybe go through phases of thinking a lot about it and then I pull out and then usually in China it's nice because, or even here because now I'm here by the beach, but in China like when you start overthinking all of a sudden you're invited to like Qinghai and you're at the lake and you're petting a yak. So it takes you, like it takes you into the local space and the local dialects, but it also takes you out of your head in this way of overthinking because if you want to be present with the world that you're in, at least from the way I'm present in the world, I don't. I like to just be in it and not be like ha having a distance in the moment. So yeah. maybe that's how. Oh yeah, no, yeah. That, that's awesome. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, I get in China. It's more common to read like at readings where there are like twenty poets, and you go up and read two or three poems. And then here, a lot of times, like in, I read, I'm sort of like an adopted North Beach poet, even though I don't live there. And so the readings there are often like either the poets read for half an hour, or like fifteen or twenty minutes. So that's one um, difference. And but in China, like I. Last year in Yunnan, I did a, a, an event, and we had like two-hour talks, and we each read. But actually, the poems, we only read a few, I think. Um, so that's one difference. Also, um, in China, well, I mean, and I've also read in like Bangladesh, which was amazing, because at their poetry, World Poetry Festival, I was there during the, the strike last year. January when the, like while I was there a bus got blown up and it actually wasn't that like it was a really I mean they're undergoing a lot of instability but the Bangladesh people were just so beautiful and there were like um, uh, pedicab drivers that stopped and we were reading outside and there were just hundreds of people coming through the whole day and it was like this flow of people in the U.S. Um, space public spaces. I feel like audiences tend to be more like focused and like th that. There's, um, I don't know. I, sometimes I, I say it's like the quietness of like being in church, um, and then in China, a lot of times it's like things are going on, or and it's all part of the space, and it's just like, like if you read at the bar now, people are quieter, but like a lot of times people will talk, and it's it's not rude, and it's just like part of it somehow, and so. I think that's uh, like a, one difference. But I love like every, I don't know, like if I read here sometimes in San Francisco it's like 10 people, but people are so engaged. So I feel like I love everywhere. Um, yeah. I'm going to take maybe two questions. I think Angela, you had one and then and, and this gentleman. Uh, I have a couple questions that are kind of related. Uh -huh. um, The tones, I, when I translate, I feel like when you translate from like Chinese to English, they're two different musics. So when I translate a Chinese poem into English, I'm translating it into a, an English music. Um, and I don't try to like reproduce, if there's like a rhyme, but in the poem I don't necessarily try to follow it exactly. But if a poem is heavily rhymed, then I'll make it rhyme in English, but not the exact things. But that's different than because you were asking about the tones. Because in Mandarin, the tones they have the the words mean different things by based on the tone. And English isn't like that. So I think that's where, like, is, in poetry translation, one thing that you sit with is like just the different musics of language. I wanted to ask uh, what drew you to Chinese language, or why did you choose to learn Chinese? 
Um, actually, I was working at the Chinese restaurant because um, I was a philosophy major, but then I was working, all my friends in high school got a job at this local Chinese restaurant, and um, they took me in as like their daughter, and I, Mr. and Mrs. Wang, and then the chef were different Mr. and Mrs. Wang, and they were telling me stories about China every day. And I'm like, I want to go there. And I mean, growing up, I'd been interested in China, but it's like in Tucson, I didn't have that much exposure. But being in the restaurant, so I changed my major my sophomore year, and then I went there my junior year of college, and I was like, oh my God, I want to live here. And um, ever since then, my life has been very like intricately woven with China. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Like, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you guys have been amazing, and it's been a privilege to be here with you today. It's really a privilege to have you, and um, don't forget, if you'd like to grab a chapbook on your way out, that would be bad. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much to talk to you. I thought if I was too bad, I would start making signs. Sorry. <laughs>